0: Hey, everyone, welcome back to the OnScript podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. This is a re-release of an episode we released about two years ago, and it was one that I wanted to listen to again, and I thought you might as well. Uh, So we hope you enjoy this re-released episode with Philip Ziegler, and as always, uh, we appreciate you listening, and if you'd like to share the word, please do so. Thanks so much. Hello OnScript listeners, this is Aaron Heim coming to you from Wycliffe Hall in Oxford where I am a tutor in Biblical Studies. Our guest today is Professor Philip Ziegler whose book, Militant Grace, tackles foundational questions resulting from what he calls the apocalyptic turn in Christian theology. Now Phil's book encompasses a dizzying array of Christian theologians, from Luther and Calvin to Kierkegaard and Barth and Bonhoeffer, and somehow he even manages to be conversant with biblical scholars like Ernst Kasemann and J. Louis Martin and John Barclay and Beverly Gaventa. Phil, we are really delighted that you could join us today. Welcome to OnScript.
1: It's an absolute pleasure to be with you.
0: So, off the bat, it's important to define the terms of our discussion, especially since a term like apocalyptic is, as I've actually said before on our podcast, a nebulous term, even among its adherents, and it's a downright contentious term in some circles. So, Phil, what do you mean by apocalyptic?
1: Sure, yeah, you're certainly right about that. Um, for purposes of, of, of the, the book, um, I've taken the term apocalyptic up as a term of art, as I found it used by a collection of Pauline scholars, uh, some of whom you've named, Beverly Gav- Gaventa, Lou Martin, and others, um, who have found it a useful term to capture um, something fundamental about the nature of Paul's witness to the gospel. Um, And I I understand, as you say, that in biblical studies, the use of that term is a hotly contested thing, whether it it applies best and only to the genre of writings or a a genre of uh, ancient writings, or uh, whether or not it can be used in the way that they use it. Um, I'm quite happy to sit reasonably light on that, I find it useful as a term to capture something which I'm sure theologically we could find other words for. I mean, you could use the word eschatological to express much of what's here, but there, the, there's a kind of forcefulness to the term apocalyptic, which I find helpful and um, an evocation of some, something of the of the character of the events that are at stake uh, in in what Paul wants to say about the nature of. Um, God's saving activity in Jesus Christ that I find useful. Um, it's a, it's an evocative term. Uh, it, it is a little unnerving, which is also not a bad thing at the start of a conversation. It invites the question, what are you possibly talking about? Um, and that at least is a question uh, which we can follow on from. So um, it, in other conversations I've had, I've been happy to, to sort of say that if if there were other language that were possible to to uh, express as concisely as as the term apocalyptic does what's going on here, um, I'd, I'd be happy to use them, and uh, so I'm not wedded to it as a kind of essential piece of language, but I do find it very, very helpful, um, and uh, of, for just those kinds of reasons that that it it expresses, it draws attention to something fundamental about what, what Paul is uh, saying and doing with the gospel, and um, it's a it's a hook on which i can hang the the number of of specifically theological aspects about his witness which i find are are so important for th- my own thinking theologically at the minute
0: sure and that's exactly what you're trying to do in this book is to hang various other aspects of christian doctrine on this um, apocalyptic framework that you as you say um is a useful way of describing paul's um paul's version of the gospel um and i think that's exactly how i've heard um, Beverly and um, John Barclay use that term. That it's not necessarily one wedded to genre, but it's one that um, they find useful as a theological concept to um, encompass what Paul is doing. I think Douglas. Yeah, just so. Yeah, go ahead.
1: <laughs> just so, no. I was going to say. I mean, it's um, to, to take it as a synonym, which of course it is, even in translation, of the of the term revelation um, is is exactly right and. Um, what it allows me to uh, to lift up from Paul and then to think about theologically is the character of that revelation as both a disclosure, true, but uh, uh, even more fundamentally an event that affects uh, and determines the nature of reality itself. Um, so it's it's uh, the language of Revelation tends to tip towards the epistemic side, um, uh, which is, of course, integral to what's at stake here. But even more fundamentally, I think, for Paul, is the thought that um, uh, the, the revelation of God in Jesus Christ is an event which uh, uh, changes everything, an event around which time and space, uh, the cosmos itself, turns. Right, um, and so it's the eventful character of that, the reality determining character of that event, the effectiveness of that event. Uh, all of those things I think can be expressed under the rubric of revelation, obviously. Uh, uh, but the language of apocalyptic really helps to bring that out. Right, whatever else an apocalypse is, it's something that makes something happen. Right, it's a, it's a, it's a happening, an occurrence. Um, so the, that particular piece of the, of the meaning of the word, I find. Uh, extraordinarily helpful.
0: Yeah, I think that's a helpful distinction too, to distinguish the event that then determines epistemology and everything else from just a, a category of epistemology uh, where we somehow realize something that was always there. That's definitely not the, the focus of an apocalyptic um, theology. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah. Yes, for sure. Yeah. The other language, which I've I, I've I've sort of imagined you could use is you could you could put this whole thing under the rubric of advent, right? The arrival of God, the coming of God, the appearance of God. I mean, all of those terms are the, are are ones which I would think um, are in the kind of cloud, the linguistic conceptual cloud that I'm trying to 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 use the word apocalyptic here to to capture, and they all have that force of. Um, uh the arrival of something uh, new and unheard of that changes the circumstance in in, in which we find ourselves. Uh, and what, whatever else Paul thinks about the gospel, I think he certainly thinks that. Mm, mm.
0: And you write about this apocalyptic turn with and you speak about it uh, with a great deal of conviction. Um, so how did you get interested in the apocalyptic turn and and why do you think that this issue, this framework is such an essential one? perhaps the essential one for Christian theology.
1: Sure. So um, my own kind of encounter with it, I suppose, feels a bit happenstance. Uh, uh, I I hadn't really come across it as a student in uh, theology uh, in... Toronto, where I did all of my, my work in the 1990s. Um, and But I spent a year at the University in Princeton at the uh, Center for the Study of Religion on a postdoctoral placement in 2001, 2002. Uh, the purpose of my time there was to write a, uh, a series of papers on Paul Lehman, the theological ethicist who had taught for a time at a uh, number of places, Harvard, Princeton, and also at Union in his later days, um, and while I was there, his papers were deposited in the seminary archive r- relatively recently, and I was working through his uh, uh, his literary legacy there. I was keen to meet people who knew him, uh, and in the course of, of encountering these people around um, in the northeast part of the U.S. there, I met, among others, Christopher Morse, who at that point was still professor of uh, theology at Union Seminary, who had been very, very close to, to Lehman. Uh, and Christopher is a very hospitable guy. Everyone who knows him will know what I mean. Um, he, he was keen not only to kind of speak to me about Layman, but also to be sure that I met other people who knew him. And so he... Uh, and I traveled up on the train to New Haven one afternoon to meet Dorothy and Lou Martin, who were living there in their retirement at that point. And um, L- Lou, as you've, other guests you've had in the past have told you uh, stories about the, one of Lou's great gifts was to connect people who he thought needed to be together. Uh, and so after I had met him, I I, I I had a series of other people kind of contact me saying, Lou Martin said we have to get together and talk, including be- beverly and susan eastman and others um, and so those kind of personal contacts have been a way in which i've i've been led in into the the discussion uh, in that particular way i think materially um what what caught my eye about it initially was um the way in which it um uh, suggests that there's a way of understanding Paul that puts the radicality of divine grace at the very heart of the matter again um, and this from my theological point of view was uh, an extraordinary exciting proposition um, and the way in which it does that of course was new to me the the all the, the sort of interest in the in the cosmological and the, the turning of the ages and the three agent drama the sort of features that are the hallmarks of a lot of that scholarship um these were novelties to me things i was excited to get my head around to sort of contemplate um, and the more that i did that the, the, the more i found that they that this idiom really did help to what to communicate the force of paul's understanding of grace and its radicality um in a way that other ways of speaking about these matters that i had kind of uh, acquired through the years and had, had become commonplace f- for me um, uh, were unable do. Um, and so the wager of the book uh, kind of, as it's emerged over a decade, essentially, has been a a series of attempts to think about what it might look like to take systematic theological responsibility for these kinds of developments in Pauline studies. Um, and, I suppose um, part of the essential character of that, or w- w- why it's so sort of a burden that, that I felt needed to be picked up, is that um, Protestant theology in particular, I'm, I'm coming to the Reformed side of the Christian tr- tradition, uh, Protestant theology in particular is um, exposed, I think in a particularly strong way, to developments in understanding Paul. Right? I mean, some of the basic convictions at the root of those traditions in their distinctiveness uh, understandings of of grace and faith and justification and election and so on, sort of Paul's suite of soteriological um, uh, convictions and uh, commitments. Those categories are particularly exposed to changes in the way that we read Paul. Right? Um, and whatever else Protestant theology is, I suppose, in my view, it's the kind of theology that wants to hear Paul aright. Um, not only Paul, clearly, but in with, with a particular kind of intensity, Paul, um, and so the thought that these sorts of developments in Pauline ex, exegesis put real pressure on the traditional ways of thinking and speaking about soteriological matters, in particular, uh, seemed to me something that really just couldn't be be bypassed. Right, um, and so the 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 work that's gathered together in the book. Uh, is essentially my attempt just to think through some of that pressure and to try to th- think about uh, and to uh, explore what might happen if we took this way of reading Paul seriously, what kinds of things might we need to say differently about our understanding of salvation, about the the nature of Jesus Christ, about our understanding of space and time, um, so on, so on, so on. So to tr- kind of trace out the doctrinal consequences of an adjusted or a, a, a revolutionized, perhaps depending on your point of view, reading of Paul. Um, so I think that's kind of where where it comes from in human terms as well. But materially, um, it's 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 theology's exposure. In particular, to to the importance of Paul's witness to the um, to, to the soteriological core of Christian faith that I, I suppose made it um, in, uh, unavoidable for me at least as a as a the- the- theological thinker to to uh, work with with this new understanding of Paul in this way. Um, I might say also that uh, as I noted in the introduction, the 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 we um, we, we struck up a group of, of us that met for and still does uh, around the edges of the ARSBL um, from time to time, uh, explorations in theology and apocalyptic. And one of the things that was exciting about that for me was it put kind of biblically minded theologians and theologically minded biblical studies people together to talk in a way that I really covet and which I hadn't been all that good at cultivating before that. Um, And the opportunity to think about these things collectively and in a collaborative way, has been one of the real, uh, uh, both delightful and important aspects of this work f- for me. So I, the book is really, I mean, it's I've, it's got my name on the front, but it really does reflect a series of insights which have been won from uh, a decade's worth of corporate conversation. So I'm I'm grateful to 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 that group in particular and the people who have who have been involved in it over the years for their their stimulation and provocation mm. for sure.
0: And what a neat, yeah, what a neat project to be a part of. Um, and one of the reasons that I was so excited about your book is that attention to not only these—I mean, as you say—the influence of Paul on these, obviously, massively influential Protestant thinkers, um, going back, <laughs> uh, obviously, well, millennia at this point. Um, but also, you're just—you're careful. Um, attention to what's what's actually happening in Paul's writings themselves. And uh, I attribute that um, to your skill as a theologian who's attuned, but also to, yes, as you say in this introduction, it's very clear that these these theological ideas have been um, carefully cultivated in close conversation with biblical scholars. And I think likewise, when I read someone like um, Beverly Gaventa or Susan Eastman or John Barclay, you see the influence um, of Good theologians um, and sound theological thinking. So I, I personally, as a as a young scholar who um, kind of came up with, uh, you know, J. Lewis Martin being my my hero that I've never met, um, and Beverly Gaventa being someone who, um, yeah, who I can look at her writings and say these are the these are these are the reasons that I'm excited about biblical studies, um, and it's it is precisely because they seem to To pay such close attention to the theological implications of their exegesis. So I just, I, I want to say thank you for for just the careful work of a, of a group like that, and it's clearly evident in this book, too.
1: Oh, well, that's very kind. The, the, um... Th- the benefit for me of uh, thinking and running conversation with um, the kinds of New Testament scholars um, whose names you've mentioned there um, has been essentially to be taken back to school on the importance of Paul, in particular, but the Bible more g- g- generally for the work of doing Christian dogmatics. Um, there are all kinds of ways, of course, in which one could conceive that the task of thinking doctrinally um, and uh, the idea that uh, that that doctrinal uh, reflection needs to be should be must be riveted to the bible um and uh, and looking to refresh and renew itself by that consistent fresh exposure um is something that this whole endeavor has sort of convinced me of again if i had uh, lost that sensibility previously um i should say i feel i do feel uh that i'm i'm sort of reaching outside my comfort zone in a lot of places here um i mean i as anyone does in a, of, uh, extended theological education, had a fair amount of training in, in the biblical study side of things, but, um, I don't count myself an exegete of any, uh, uh, significance whatsoever. And so I'm, I realized that I'm particularly reliant on the scholarship of others, but that seems to, to be the way that things both kind of can and ought to be done. Right. Um, so it's, uh, uh it's been a great joy to, to, to have, have had my theological thinking kind of pulled back into proximity with the Bible and kind of held there in a way that I'd like to think would be a mark of, of the rest of my work going forward as well.
0: Hmm. Hmm. So what I didn't mention in our introduction is that Philip actually has a long pedigree in theology. Uh, he holds, I think I counted five degrees total or some something like that from the University of Toronto, the University of St. Michael's College, then Victoria University, University of Toronto some more. Um, and you're also ordained uh, to the order of ministry in the United Church in Canada. Um, and you are a junior fellow then at Massey, college, and you did, as you mentioned, this postdoc at Princeton before you taught, I think, a stint at Atlantic School of Theology, and then you finally have migrated to the University of Aberdeen, where you now hold a personal chair in Christian dogmatics. That's a that's a pretty um, illustrious career path. So what set you on this path in the first place to becoming a professional theologian?
1: That's interesting. I, uh, I didn't imagine that this was, was my vocational direction of travel um when i got to to the end of my high school studies uh, i started my my university work actually at the royal military college in canada which is the sort of equivalent it's a tri-service college a bit like west point for all three services and um uh, i was training to be an artillery officer and studying english as my degree um a couple years into the program i i realized i had made a kind of vocational error of a significant size. And so um, left that program and moved sideways to finish my undergraduate studies in um, what I thought was to be English literature at the University of Toronto. Um, it turned out that uh, transferring to the University of Toronto uh, was a complicated business and it was easier for me to finish in religious studies than it was in in, in English. So that's what I did. Um, in part because I was excited to go to, to go there for two reasons. One was uh, to, to have the chance to, to, to be close to Emmanuel college, uh, and the Toronto school of theology more generally, which is where I subsequently went on to, to do my theological training, but just to be there as an undergraduate, to be close to that and to get a chance to suss out what was going on there and what kind of educational opportunities there were. Uh, because at that point I, I was working through our churches did discernment processes for ministry. Um, and then also to have a chance to, to take, um, the undergraduate courses that, uh, the literary, Critic Northrop Fry was teaching still at that point in Toronto on the Bible and Western culture. These were famous um, courses, and I had read Northrop Fry's work, The Great Code, and, and related works as a teenager um, and had been really struck by his sense of how, um, how lively and important the Bible was for just understanding the the cultural world in which we lived and i was excited to to be able to to take those courses with him those courses were actually taught as religious studies courses and so uh uh, that's partially why I, i i ended up following that that route but at the end of that that degree i um i had discerned a call to ministry in the united church of canada and so i i stayed on at emmanuel college there and pursued the mdiv degree with with that pastoral uh, horizon in mind uh, one of the, the things about the the Toronto School of Theology is the scale of it sort of eight, seven or eight colleges all in a Federation is ecumenical kind of melting pot it was a fabulous place to study when I was there and um, you could also c- combine uh, academic study and pastoral training so I did a, 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 a joint MAM div because I, I was interested in the academic the intellectual side of the Christian tradition and I wasn't quite sure you know, which of those trajectories I might be better suited to make a, a contribution to. And so I did the, those two degrees in joint thinking, by the time I get to the end, I'll, I'll know which way this is going to break. And I didn't know when I got to the end, so I just kept going. Um, I had opportunities to carry on to do my PhD work in Toronto and I did that. Um, David Dempson they're one of my primary supervisors. Uh, John Webster and George Schnur were also teaching there at the time, and they, so fabulous teachers and very encouraging um, folks. And I uh, I did a project there on um, the East German theologian Wolf Krutke, um, who was a, a living theologian at the time I was writing. Um, he had been one of the leading f- figures in the East German theological community uh, during the communist period. And I, I was intrigued by um, what had happened to Protestant theology, the kind of developments that Protestant theology had, had undergone under those conditions. C- conditions of radical aggressive secularization um the thought being that the kinds of lessons that had been learned in that context uh under immense secular pressure might be of real value to those of us who were uh, thinking and pastoring in a place like canada where the concerned about secularization as the horizon of church life was a real thing so um that project was a great one. I enjoyed it a lot, and um, then I had the chance to pursue this postdoctoral placement, as I mentioned, in Princeton. And um, the interest in Paul Layman was was uh, related to my sort of interest in in um, Christianian public life. So, in fact, the, the the grant program that took me there was was a series of funded uh, postdocs on. Uh, uh, public theology in America was the rubric that uh, the funding was under, and so I was reading Layman Le- with a view to the way that theology engages with public issues and takes responsibility for public matters. He was a sort of <laughs> theological ethicist with a particular interest in in the political uh, and and the wider world. Um, the, the chance to teach at, at, at AST consolidated my both my ecumenical interests and then also the there, too, a very small department. I think by the time I joined the staff, we were seven or eight. And so you had both lots of scope to teach because lots of things needed doing, and you were there. And so you, you did them. Um, but it also meant that we worked very closely together with colleagues in other subdisciplines. You couldn't afford to be precious about uh, that, and so um, lots of, of um, uh, very happy and fruitful encounters with New Testament colleagues, pe- 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 people working in related kinds of fields. So I like to think that my interest in 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 the keeping the proximity of biblical study and theology together emerged in part from that time in Halifax. Um, and it's certainly been a feature here in, um, Aberdeen over the years too. We've had, uh, th- uh, New Testament scholars here who have been interested in the theological in ways that have been very open. Francis Watson was on the staff when, when I joined and was my original mentor here. Uh, and the, theologically too, the people who I've, who I have and continue to work with here are also very interested in that conversation. So, um, yeah, it's, it's been a good environment to work and I feel really blessed by, by all of that.
0: Hmm. Um, and if a lot of our, um, our, our on-script listeners are either uh, students theologi- in theological education uh, of some stage, or they are early career um, people, kind of like me. Um, I guess we're the podcast generation. So. <laughs> um, but if you, if you had any, one piece of advice to give people who are starting out, what, what words of wisdom would you have?
1: Oh, that's tricky. Um, a s- single piece of advice um chase the chase the questions you love um it's 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 a real privilege to have time and space to think about these sorts of matters of um real even ultimate concern and there's a whole lot about life that uh, uh conspires to crowd that out um and so to the extent that, that you find yourself ge- given opportunities by virtue of being enrolled in programs or engaged in conversations with colleagues or the opportunity to pursue uh, study or reflective opportunities to really identify and to dig in on the questions that really animate you in your own, um, theological reflection. You should really take those up. Um, they're fleeting opportunities often and they are really pressurized increasingly. So, um, I, it's you, university life just like, um, uh, parish life um uh does a lot to crowd out uh, perhaps surprisingly um space for 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 reflective thought and so um trying to find ways to, to get elbow room to to continue that um yeah and being willing to just to to, to to uh stick with the questions that really animate you um i mean there's lots of interesting questions out there in the world um, but if you find a channel of thinking that you, that that you really find um, you're convinced is important and fruitful, whether for your ministry or for your teaching or for some combination of the two, um, uh, being able to sort of d- uh, uh, hoe, hoe that row, as they say over here uh, in in Britain at kind of at length and patiently is a real, uh, uh, is something well, well worth doing for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's get back to the book then. Um, in the opening sentences of this book, as we've already talked about, you point to J. Lewis Martin as sort of a preeminent figure in the apocalyptic turn. Obviously not only in biblical studies, but as um, as you've shown in theology. Um, so what impact um, has J. Lewis Martin had, help me understand as a biblical scholar, on theology in particular?
1: Sure. So um, let me speak just for... For me, um, I, th- I think the ideas that come from, from Lou's work that have been most important for me theologically are the way in which his interpretation of Paul um, draws attention to a number of features of Paul's gospel, which are of decisive importance for um, uh, the content of Christian doctrine and also the form of its presentation. So, um, for instance... Um, one of the things that, that Lou draws ta- attention to time and time again in his readings of Paul is the way that Paul um, con- construes of the, of the business of salvation as what he calls a three-agent drama. Right? So it's typical for us um, uh, to, often to think of the, the work of salvation as a transaction between God and the human creature, a kind of two-agent drama, two, two players on this stage. God's doing something, humans are doing something, and uh, whatever you want to say about the outworking of salvation, it has those two agencies involved. Okay. there's much, of course, to recommend about that. Loose su- suggestion, though, that we don't do justice to Paul's account of the gospel if we don't see him telling a story in which not only two agents are involved in the business of salvation, but a third agent, um, and and a third agent whose uh, whose role is m- much more fundamental than you might have imagined. Uh, and that, of course, is 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 the sort of the role of the inimical powers. Uh, Lou tends to call them the anti-God powers, sometimes with capitals. Um, uh, the, 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 the the there's a kind of Pauline triumvirate of, sort of sin, death, and the devil. Right? That uh, that I, I use that sometimes in the book as a shorthand for this this suite of sort of inimical powers. The idea that those the agency of those powers um, and their enmity, both vis a vis God and therefore vis a vis God's good creatures, um, is baked into the understanding of the gospel in a way that such that if we don't do justice to it theologically, we're, we're simply not doing justice to Paul's witness. Um, that, that had never really struck me uh, with the force that it has since um, my, my sort of encounter with Lou's work um, and trying to take responsibility for that particular insight uh, is, is no easy thing. I mean, of course there's lots of theological discourse in the tradition about the role of the devil and other kinds of things. Of course, that devil's not a particularly, um, uh, uh, he, it's not a particular theme which is highly amenable to modern sensibilities um, so so it, it raises all kinds of really interesting and frankly quite tricky theological questions about how, what it would mean to talk about these the, this third agent um, uh, clearly uh, responsibly, I mean both, and by responsibly there, I, I mean on one hand responsible t- to the biblical witness um, and it's sort of uh, uh, the, the contours of, of of its witness to these powers. Uh, and then also to think responsibly about how, how those powers f- figure in a wider understanding of Christian doctrine and testimony. So, um, so that, that, the third the three agent drama feature is one of the things which is which I think is really put pressure on me personally and I think others to um, uh, to think about uh, or to, to change the way we think theologically about the business of salvation sure one of the things that thinks that, that means yep please oh, go on and
0: I just I, I just wanted to interject there he has this phrase that you pick up that fits pretty well with the um, this idea of three agents that that um, that the world has been twice invaded and that's a pretty important um, foundational piece of the framework that you're laying out in the book so I wondered if you could um, talk about what you mean and maybe what Martin means when he says that the world has been twice invaded in relation to these anti-god powers in the three agent yeah. drama
1: yeah good so the the uh, the the world as such the product of divine creation um, uh, has a history so one of the things that, that that lose account of Paul suggests is that there's a we don't think of the world on that quite properly with Paul unless we think of it in, in this historicized way. There's a story to tell about the world. And that story includes two moments of catastrophic intervention. Um, the first is is the eruption of sin into the world. Um, and sin here is understood uh, not so much as... Um, the kind of moral, uh, uh, turpitude of, of, uh, of individual human, hu- hu- human beings or even human beings taken in their collectivity, but, uh, as a, as a power external to human beings, to which they succumb. Right. Um, and, and, and that's why in terms of the grammar with which it's spoken of sin, death, and the devil keep close company in Paul's work, right? Sin is a kind of agent, um, uh, uh, uh external to the human being um, uh, an agent whose power is uh, is such that the human being cannot on its own terms resist that power uh, a power that literally invades the creation it's it's it doesn't belong there right it's not part of the good creation it's alien it's properly alien to it it, it has no proper place um, it's not to be kind of reasoned with or accommodated or rationalized it's and its structure is sheer negativity right it's just it's it's profoundly inimical to the goodness of God and to the goodness of God's creatures and their, and their, their flourishing. So that invasion remakes the world, as Lou puts it right in one, in, in sort of one stage. Um, he then speaks about Paul's understanding of what God does in Jesus Christ as a second invasion. So this language of invasion is, is he's, he's fond of it. Um, uh, what it's trying to capture then, that again is that the, the, the uh, the working the, the outworking of saving grace in, in Jesus Christ is not a kind of um, natural emergence from the flow of history. It doesn't just kind of happen uh, as a result of the imminent processes of the unfolding of things, but rather um, uh, God um, arrives on the scene, as it were, in a new and unanticipated way um, in Jesus Christ to um, uh, to. Uh, again, his language—you find it in Casamont to to reclaim that creation which has been uh, falsely lorded over by sin—and um, so you can hear already in in his idiom the kind of martial metaphors that, that are so common here. Um, the, what that the, one of the things that that does, I think, theologically for us, is it, uh, it, it is, is it helps us to uh, to rethink again the way we think about sin. This idea of sin as a uh, as a as an inimical power a third thing which is not just this kind of, the kind of uh, consequences of human finitude and folly though no doubt those things are are weaponized by sin to be sure um, but uh, sin as a uh, as a, a, as a genuinely third uh and in some ways um utterly alien uh, agent in the midst of of the creation. Um, it puts themes like lordship on the table again, right? Um, one of Kazamon's great questions, who is the Lord of this world? Um, so the thought that there's a contest going on, uh, but between this, uh, you kind of the usurpacious power of sin, uh, and the rightful lordship of God, uh, and that the human creature is whatever it is, it is in the midst of that struggle, right? Uh, and, uh, and that the business of divine salvation is to redeem, um, to liberate creatures out from under the lordship of sin, uh, the false lordship of sin, and to restore them to the uh, the proper lordship um, of the God who is their creator, redeemer, and savior. So that 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 way of th- thinking it puts the it puts the motifs of redemption and liberation at the front of the way we think about soteriology. There's a chapter in the. Uh, in the book, which uh, concentrates on that and suggests that you can think about reconciliation as a moment internal to this wider uh, account of redemption, uh, so that we don't have to lose sight of themes of guilt and forgiveness and whatnot, but that the major motif, the kind of leading and coordinating motif, um, is in fact redemption out from under the uh, usurpacious usurpacious lordship of sin. that for me has been one of the really exciting bits of of sort of Lou's theological consequences. That, and again, those those themes have been at uh, uh, they've been at work in the tradition, of course, o- o- over time. And so they're not sheer novelties. But the way that Lou um, and those who are th- thinking in and around that that, that, that uh, apocalyptic reading of Paul uh, uh, come on to Paul is that they really do help to, to bring those themes to the surface as ones, which, which, in my mind, require uh, 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 important theological reception, and then sort of uh, uh, the, the consequences of that reception um, lead us in all kinds of interesting, and I think, I hope, fruitful directions in, in rethinking and re- republishing the basic shape of the Christian message.
0: So if I can play devil's advocate for just a minute then, um, given that we're talking about sin, death, and the devil. Uh, hopefully I don't embody those things all the time, but maybe just write for this minute. And um, I ask this question because I, I am drawn to apocalyptic theology, and I presented a paper uh, that gave a fairly apocalyptic reading of a passage in Galatians, and... Um, one of the members of my seminar and friend, Murray Ray, uh, said, I think this is an interesting reading, but I have a problem with this language of invasion and battle, uh, because it makes it sound like God, there was a time when God somehow lost his sovereignty. And, um, and wasn't actually sovereign over his creation. So I have a problem with this because it sounds like he's coming to creation that was not somehow already his. So how do we answer that objection um, in a way that does justice to other texts where we don't necessarily find the militant language that we do in, say, Galatians?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, sure. So that, of course, is a uh, that, that that's a genuine and a, and a, and a very apt th- theological c- consideration Um let me take a step back and, and I'll, I'll come at the question like this. So one of the things that I think this way of, re, of reading Paul requires us to ask is what kind of dualists Christians have to be. Um, and uh, this question, in the way that Murray put it to to you, helps us to clarify one of the kinds of dualists which we're not to be. And that is a kind of, there is no, uh, this way of reading Paul does not commit us to a kind of dualism dualism of origin or kind of originary dualism that would pit sort of God and anti-God as two equivalent uh, divine powers contesting over a creation or something. Um, That's... Yes, that's right. Yeah, we're not committed down that line. Um, That's for sure. Um, But what we are, I think, committed to is is the view that in the midst of the good creation um, uh, 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 over which God is properly provident... Um, the, there is an inexplicable, um, um, un, uncoordinatable uh, eruption of uh, opposition to God, um, which runs and runs and runs. And uh, why it runs is, I think, beyond the ken of 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 faith. That it runs is both the witness of Scripture and, I think, uh, uh Something which, illumined by Scripture, we can read off our our experience of the world, in a certain sense, as well. So that there is opposition to God in the world, uh, and indeed in ourselves. That uh, that 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 that, that um, opposition is is an object of God's concern. Uh, is an object of God's uh, uh, sovereignty for sure. But the 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 mode of that sovereignty, the mode in which God s- seems to want to um, to confront and to encounter that uh, eruption of opposition, is precisely um, uh, through the outworking of salvation in Christ in the way that 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 um, that we read, and so. Um, <laughs> One of the, the consequences of, of this way of thinking for me has been to pull to pull the doctrine of providence ever more closely to the doctrine of salvation itself. That we um, uh, and that does put pressure on the on the doctrine of providence. I mean, it's it's not quite so easy as you know as Mary's question suggests to say um, uh, uh, kind of in a comfortable. Um, uh, Untroubled way um, uh, that divine governance uh, simply means that this way, this sort of disruption at the heart of creation, is not a real thing, or not something that needs to be taken seriously, or the kind of thing that that one could be relaxed about, or what what have you. There are whole series of possibilities which are simply ruled out of bounds there, um, and th- that the mode of God's providence is is best understood and illumined kind of reflexively from the way that salvation itself is worked out. Um, so that we don't, the, the worry that we, we might, we might be able to cultivate a kind of abstract account of providence, which, which floats relatively free of the way we understand sal- salvation. That's part of what, of what causes that disjunction. Um, so I suppose for me, the, the idea, of The discourse of invasion, uh, of eruption, of advent, even, that God kind of comes to the world uh, in Jesus Christ, doesn't so much suggest um, absence as it suggests the effective appearance in time and space of the God who wills to. save his good creation to save the good creation precisely by the uh overturning of this um uh, 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 usurpacious power um that that is the mode in which god provides as it were right that the mode of divine governance is precisely the, the mode of salvation um so yeah i mean mary's point 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 is a good one there's a kind of but there is a kind of dualism to to which i think christians are c- c- committed you know um and I'm not sure that we're committed to to ascribe um, uh, the work of sin uh, in the world or the work of sin, death, and, and the devil in our experience of faith um, uh, uh, precisely because of its inimical character. We're, we're, we're not obliged to ascribe it to divine providence, right? Um, I mean, it's I think it's entirely within our right uh and indeed perhaps an obligation for Christians to confess that there are things that happen in the world, which are simply not willed by God, right? That, that God has a will with reference to those things, but, but God's will with reference to those things is their contradiction. Uh, uh, and, uh, that I know is there's, there's much to think about there theologically to be sure. But I, as a starting point, I, I think this, this understanding of Paul's gospel kind of has reawakened that has sense that, that, uh, it's important, uh, for for Christian theology to 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 acknowledge the those the the fact of um, that which God does not will in the midst of the world, um, of course how 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 to think that through theologically, how to work, work it out doctrinally, but I think that's that's the burden that I think this work puts theologians like like. You and I under, um, and I think that's those are the right kind of problems to have, uh, precisely because they're the problems that arise from taking this account of the gospel seriously.
0: Yeah, and I and I have to say that's one of the things that I'm most drawn to in terms of this apocalyptic framework is that it actually gives you vocabulary to to call evil evil, Um, and we don't have to give an account, or at least this gives us a way of saying. That there are things working that out theologically is obviously more complicated, but there are things that are antithetical to the will of God, um, and pastorally and existentially, that's an important um, an important question. So, if we change directions, really, actually, 180 degrees. Phil, are you ready for your first speed round?
1: Oh gosh! Okay. Bring okay. On. That's, okay. That's... Okay.
0: They're off the wall questions. The rules are that you put you answer the first thing that comes into your head. And you don't have to give us any explanation for it. And there is no judgment, no matter what you say. Okay, maybe there's some judgment on some questions, but not... (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, Okay, so here we go. If you could be any animal in the world, what would you be?
1: A badger. (laughs) You didn't see that coming, I know.
0: (laughs) No, and I'm okay, and I'm I'm laughing because we had we had um, a close encounter with two badgers in our garden um, a couple of nights ago, and I didn't realize this, but when you get close to a badger, they hiss, like, and it's really unnerving. Uh, and I hope to never confront one again. So I, okay, well, I put badgers in the category of sin, death, and the devil, but um, okay. you know, good grief oh that's great um, okay uh, what is your favorite work of either fiction or nonfiction outside of theology
1: oh that's interesting um I think one of my favorite fictional titles of all time um, is well what I'm quite an avid reader so so the, the there there are lots of novels to to which I'm devoted um I think I really enjoyed reading Reading the, the unbearable lightness of being by Milan Kundera, um, that was one of my first exposures to sort of um, uh, European writing, uh, and i I found that found it very artful and just winsome and uh, and engaging. And I've enjoyed reading his work ever since.
0: Yeah. You know, I think you can tell when um, people who write in theology are avid readers of. Like good fiction or nonfiction, because your your writing in this book is exquisite, and I think you can tell when people are avid readers by how well they write in in theology. So that's that's really encouraging. Um, okay, uh, I've just moved, so I'm keen to get an immigrant perspective. What is the biggest adjustment that you faced when you moved from Canada to Scotland?
1: Hmm. Um, we were talking beforehand, actually. I- I I think it's the scale of things here in uh, the UK. Um, Coming from Canada, um, everything is just a little bit bigger. Well, actually quite a bit bigger. Um, Distances are bigger, um, kind of homes, cars, roads, sidewalks, everything just kind of that much much larger. There's just that much more space. Life here has a kind of um, – everything is – close to one another uh in ways which are good but also take some adjusting to um yeah i i think i was estimating when we were chatting before that the scale of life here is about two-thirds as big as 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 everything back home well one of the nice things about that is that and this really has been a difference which i've appreciated is that um you know within three hours by train year three 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 and a half hours by train there are four or five um uh large theological faculties you know Saint andrews edinburgh durham glasgow um uh, and the opportunities for theological collaboration and conversation in this part of the world are um are really uh um uh they're what importantly augmented and 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 it's just so so easy to to get together to talk to people um that is a glorious thing i mean we left our time in halifax but the distance between the seminary in Halifax um, and the kinds of the other kinds of places where you might find people t- to talk to about your your work, um, it took some doing, put it that way. Um, so yeah, the the compaction of life here in Scotland has taken some some adjusting to, but it's also been a blessing.
0: Yeah, I, I was thinking about that. Uh, I haven't driven our car since January, uh, and everything takes less time to clean, but we also. <laughs> But we also, because we have small children, have stuff just everywhere. <laughs> and mm. that's taken some good news too.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could I venture just another one in case this is better um, uh, as a reply to your question. The The climate here in Scotland is obviously different than the one that I was accustomed to back home in Canada. It's a This is a one-coat climate. Uh, I literally wear the same jacket 12 months of the year and uh it rarely gets below zero for any length of time and it rarely gets above 20 for any length of time um and yeah so we i mean we do have seasons but 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 uh without extremes and that that takes some getting used to as well Um,
0: yeah yeah i have um i i'm not used to winter here yet i grew up in minnesota we have winter there um and i had lots of coats that's true that's a that's an apt one okay um what is something that you find embarrassing
1: embarrassing. Um, doing these sorts of interviews, I suppose, um,
0: <laughs> that was Susan one, Eastman's answer too. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's funny. You wouldn't think that, um, someone kind of drawn vocationally to, um, to preaching and teaching would find public speaking embarrassing, but I, yeah, one does. One just <laughs> does.
0: Uh, and then do you have any, uh, hidden talents?
1: Hidden talents. Oh goodness. Um, I play a reasonably good recorder, um, and I'm not a bad euchre player.
0: Like more than hot know. cross buns, reasonably good recorder?
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah um, for sure. Um, what else? I, I learned how to curl when I was a student uh, in, in school, um, uh, like an ice sheet curling. Um, yeah, other the best talents.
0: The best Olympic sport.
1: Yes, it's a very fine thing. And one of the things that I didn't have to change my sensibilities about moving to Scotland either. Um, yeah, And I bake a mean apple crisp. How's that? Oh,
0: excellent. Excellent. So let's talk about the second part of your book, which in um, is longer than the first part of your book. Because in the second part of your book, you're actually... Uh, working out how this apocalyptic framework impinges, as you've said, on these various um, issues in theology, uh, I think especially in terms of lordship, or those are, the, those are the, the chapters that I found really helpful, lordship and salvation. And the, the second part you actually call Christ's spirit, and salvation in an apocalyptic key. Um, and you focus on Christ's lordship in this threefold office of Christ, which is to say that you're talking about Christ's kingly reign, which you say is spiritual precisely because it's eschatological. Um, So we have these three terms that uh, we don't always see together. We have apocalyptic and spiritual and eschatological. What do you mean that Christ's reign has to be conceived spiritually because it's eschatological?
1: Yeah, good. Thanks for that. So those terms arise in that chapter um, as a result of the way in which uh, reflection in the Protestant tradition at least on the nature of Christ's royal office um, has uh, tended to use the word spiritual to characterize that the nature of that office the mode of that office um, and the force of that language in the tradition uh, is I think twofold so one is one is that it, it it's to differentiate it from earthly lordship right so Christ isn't just uh, one uh, political force among other political forces, right? So different in kind from earthly powers. That I think is a is an important, a fundamentally important uh, uh, point to be made. And the language of spiritual helps to draw that distinction. So there's spiritual and earthly. The temptation, or one of the things that that language is exposed to, though, is a misunderstanding that when you say spiritual, you mean un- unreal so ineffective, right? Earthly political kings and monarchs and rulers get stuff done, but the spiritual lordship of Christ is a kind of hazy corona that floats over things, uh, but without effect. Um, And uh, whatever the language of spiritual means, uh, I'm keen for it not to, to have that kind of misunderstanding attached to it. So to call it eschatological is the way that I wanted to suggest that th- that to speak about the lordship of or Christ or Christ's lordship as spiritual is to suggest that it's uh, it's manifest in the actual outworking of the work of the Holy Spirit in the world, and that that work is eschatological in the sense that it uh, it's the pressing home of the finality of the gospel uh, in the midst of lived existence. Um, and so it's effective, right? I mean, the, that Christ Lordship isn't simply a kind of hazy Corona either floating above political events or, you know, in the. In the inner depths of my heart, um, uh, which doesn't impinge on the nature of the course of affairs in the world. I mean, qu- qu- quite the opposite. The mode in which Christ's lordship impinges on on the world is spiritual, in that it's the it's it, it's worked out by the work of the Holy Spirit um, uh, in and beyond the scope of the church, in and beyond the scope of the Christian life. Um, so. It's spiritual in the sense that it's not earthly, uh, not in competition, sort of equal competition with earthly powers, but sovereign over them. It's spiritual in the sense that it's, it's, it's the outworking or it's worked out by virtue of the activity, the ongoing activity of the, uh, of the Holy Spirit. That also means that it's present, right? It's not just something which happened in the past. There was a time when Christ sort of acted royally, uh, but now that, that we, we're not, um, uh, that's not going on in the present. Quite, quite the opposite. To call uh, that Lordship spiritual is is one of the, one of the ways in which you speak about it as a present activity. Uh, that Christ is pr- presently governing by 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 way of the Spirit, as it were.
0: Sure. And then that d- bears directly on um, other other doctrines like our understanding of theological anthropology, because um, since to be human, as you say, and I'll quote you, to have is to have life in the body as a creature of this world it is to be irrevocably knit into the fabric of the world and always and everywhere subject to rule. Um, so, so you've related Christ's dominion and indeed sin's dominion to anthropology. And I think that that for me at least was a very um, helpful way of thinking about that. And then you have this other turn with this rule, um, this, this language of, of reign and rule. Um, you say basically not only do we have these two um, possibilities of dominion, the false dominion of sin and then uh, the spiritual reign of Christ, but actually those two uh, lords have kind of enlisted, uh, to use the military term, um, their human subjects into their service. And you have this, this term for Christians who have been enlisted. You have this term, the church militant, which is, I'm assuming, where you get militant or you're picking up militant grace, but that's a, that's an idiosyncratic term. What do you, um, and I have to say one that I, I maybe struggle with, um, as, uh, as one with Anabaptist tendencies. <laughs> um, how do you, what do you mean by the church militant?
1: Sure. So the, yeah, the, the use of the word militant is an interesting, uh, and a, uh, um, a dangerous choice of terms for reasons you've, you've intimated. Um, so the, I think I, I'd like to say that the, that the primary predicate of the adjective militant here and in my thinking is grace. So it's primarily a way of characterizing divine activity, um, divine activity, which is, um, uh, uh, uh engaged, active, um, uh, powerful, effective on behalf of its, um, captured and, uh, captivated creature precisely uh uh for the purposes of redemption um and that uh that that grace comes comes against th- all which is antithetical to it in the world and so the militancy names the is a way of 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 uh, naming or calling out the shape of that of that divine activity as we as as we witness it, to speak of the church militant, so in one sense it's simply to use a very traditional term, which differentiates between the church triumphant, i.e., uh, the church in eschatological kind of glory, and the church in its pilgrimage here. Um, you, well, one could speak e- equally as well of as, as uh, of the church as the pilgrim church. Um, I, I don't think these are uh, contradictory descriptions whatsoever. Um, the militancy of the church is uh, 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 whatever it, it means it will mean in correspondence to the militancy of divine grace. So the kind of extraordinary uh, uh, power of, of self-giving, which is the basic form of divine activity, likewise the militant church is marked by a kind of surprising um, and um, surprisingly effective in the, in the gift of the Spirit, uh, powerful acts of self-giving, which, which, are, uh, which win back, as it were, um, uh, uh creatures from their captivity are are undertaken actions which are undertaken in the service of of attesting. so witness and testimony are important concepts as you would have seen uh, uh attesting to that divine activity um and serving it in the world um so proclamation and service are militant insofar as they're um, they're caught up in god's own militancy for the salvation redemption the liberation and, uh, uh, uh restoration of, uh, uh, of the lost creature. Um, the church, the, the, the part of the church's calling kind of integral to the church's calling is, is to be about its Lord's business, I suppose, uh, to, to put it that way. Oh. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. That's well said. And, and kind of to follow up on this, um, being about the Lord's business, uh, one of my favorite chapters of the book, um, maybe because of my Anabaptist leanings, was uh, your chapter on Thy Kingdom Come, um, in which you argue that to pray Thy Kingdom Come, that prayer must be understood eschatologically in order for it to be intelligible at all. And um, in your words, to pray... Thy kingdom come faithfully means inhabiting an eschatological field shaped decisively by both Christological and apocalyptic coordinates, and that petitioning God in this in just this way is properly constitutive of the very fundamentals of the Christian faith. So why, Phil, is thy kingdom come an essentially, fundamentally eschatological prayer.
1: So um the the coming of the kingdom, um, uh, the, the advent uh, of God's reign uh, uh, in and over the creation, um, is the horizon of all Christian hope. Um, and the prominence of, of that theme in, in the Lord's prayer is striking actually. Um, and, uh, not one, which it's funny for all that, that of course, it's a commonplace. It's perhaps because it's a commonplace that we, we sort of lose the, our, our, uh, our alertness to just h- how extraordinary that claim is. Um, I think I, I, th- I think I put at the head of that chapter the um, as an epigraph, that passage from the Didache, um, which is also, uh, taken from one of the prayers from Chapter Ten of the Didache: um, Let grace come and let this world pass away. Um, the The prayer for the kingdom of God in the Lord's Prayer, I think, materially is identical to the to, to the force of that prayer from the Didache. Or rather, you might think of the Didache as. As offering a kind of expansive gloss on what it means to pray for the coming of the kingdom, um, let this world pass away. This world, being used in the very specifically Pauline sense of the world subject to the dominion of sin, death, and the devil. Um, let grace come. I mean, w- what it means to ask for the coming of grace. Um, uh, I don't think that we we often appreciate how radical a transformation we we really are inviting. Uh, upon ourselves and upon the world in which we live, when we when we utter such prayers, um, so the force of that chapter was to try to recollect precisely that the the profound uh, eschatological um ambition um, hope of that prayer and to s- suggest that we that we don't pray it lightly right it's it's uh, and precisely perhaps because it's a sort of piece of the furniture in uh, in Christian worship and piety uh, our our, our uh, awareness of the radicality of, of that for which we ask here um, I think is easily eclipsed so yeah the, the the sort of ambition of that chapter was to try to surface that that sensibility again for us and um, uh, uh, and to recommend that—that that precisely because that that prayer is a piece a piece of the furniture—the suggestion there is that this kind of expectation, this kind of hope, uh, this kind of longing, and the kind of life which is built in and around, arises from this kind of longing—is exactly the kind of of life and hope and longing that uh, should be the hallmark of the Christian life. Right. So that, that from its very beginning, you know, everything else that Christians are about is undertaken kind of in and under the horizon of prayer for the coming of, of the kingdom of God um, uh, and hope for that coming. So the, the way that we orient, orient ourselves in every other, in, in everyday existence, the kind of ambitions we have for our, our responsibilities in the sphere of what, the family or politics or what have you, that all all those things are what they are inside um, uh, and on the basis of what is fundamentally an eschatological orientation towards the advent of of the reign of god
0: yeah and and then you um speaking of the christian life your third section of the book you actually unpack some of um some of how this kingdom ethic works out in apocalyptic in an apocalyptic key again so um i wonder if we could just skip i know it there's a lot that we're skipping on script listeners. I really would commend this by m- one of my other favorite chapters that we don't really have time to talk about. Cause it's kind of a, it's a complex and very um, elegant argument is um, the chapter on TF Torrance and Paul Lehman's view of natural law, which um, I found really interesting, especially since we're, you know, apparently two weeks from Brexit. Uh, and <laughs> just um, thinking through those questions, but um but Phil concludes his book with a chapter on discipleship. And um, and in keeping with the rest of his book, he says that discipleship should be a distinctive evangelical militancy. So what kinds of things do you envision a disciple of the church militant, um, as you've just said, engaged in doing?
1: Sure. Um, so I think the overarching... Th- um, uh, uh, thought that I have about the nature of discipleship is that it's primarily about the business of giving truthful Christian witness to um, the, the God apocalypsed in Jesus Christ. So um, uh, not so much a question of doing the good as doing that, which tells the truth about the God of the gospel and the world um, uh, 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 which is the creation, the saved and redeemed creation of that God. Um, and so um, I suppose the kinds of, it's the kinds of questions which I'm, I'm interested in in uh, thinking about. If we th- think about the basic Christian uh, ethos as an ethos of the discipleship, and we think of discipleship chiefly as trying to, to follow in the wake of that which God is has done and is doing in the world, then the business of the Christian is chiefly to sort of, um, ad- what, to discern and to it, to uh, participate in way or to act in ways which which enact parables of that kingdom, right? To 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 live in ways which conform and which tell the truth about the lordship of Christ, which and therefore in their militant mode um, uh, uh, testify against the falseness of the lordship of sin, death, and the devil in all of the, their concrete forms. Now, the the difficulty, uh, of course, is the move from what I, the way I've just described it there, which is a reasonably Sort of high-level summation down to the details of of that concrete discernment. But I think there's that's part of the business of Christian communities in their specific locations about you know kind of ind- individual Christian lives lived out here and here and not there and there, um, and the business of preaching. Um, uh, to be sure the business of individual prayer for prayerful discernment, I mean, the, those are the sites where, um, venturing concrete decisions about what, 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 what manner of living today in this place, uh, what way of disposing myself in the midst of this business discussion or that faculty meeting. God forbid, or, um, you know, this electoral cycle or what have you, uh, or in the face of this climate crisis or all, you know, all the, pr- the pressing things of our age, what kind of way of being a human being here tells the truth about the lordship of Christ, um, you know, um, uh, uh, offers itself as an enactment of a parable of uh, the kind of grace that uh, has broken in upon the world to break it open and to free it from precisely the kind of inimical, uh, the structures of of enmity which are uh, the sort of default options uh, in the world governed by, uh, as it were, sin, death, and the devil. Um, the overcoming of enmity. The tearing in Paul's uh, or pseudo-Paul, Paul. Uh, the language of Ephesians. Uh, the tearing down of the walls that divide. I mean, I think there there we're, we're not left without direction. Kind of signposts as to the the shape of those activities, uh, or or their direction of travel, but. Um- the thing that that I think this is this way of thinking has really enjoined upon me is the importance of that of that question of thinking about the Christian life is fundamentally parabolic right um, we're not bringing in the kingdom it's too late for that um, that's God's about the business of bringing in the kingdom um, uh, The advent of God is precisely the context within which our own lives are to be set and understood, and um, our service to that um, uh, that for which we pray the coming of the kingdom is is precisely to enact ever so human but genuine parables of the kingdom uh, in all of the places where we actually find ourselves um, and so that I myself at least have found that one of the real sort of uh, profound upshots of this way of th- thinking along with with these readers of Paul um, uh, to, to sort of change the way that I think about the nature of Christian ethics um, uh, at kind of as a discourse but then more concretely, the shape of the Christian life what what kinds of ways when I preach what for, for instance, what kinds of ways am I um, uh, speaking about uh, and encouraging pe- 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 people to reflect on and conceive of their own Christian existence in the world um, seems to me it makes a difference if we think of ourselves as trying to kind of achieve the good uh, or if we think of ourselves as as trying to um, uh, uh, live in ways which tell the truth about the one who who has um, made us his own, uh, and whose Lordship we, we, uh, um, uh, we endeavor to, to, to serve truthfully in the world. That, that way of the, the way we speak about the kind of fundamental language with which I want to talk about the Christian life, um, uh, has sh- shifted over the course of this decade, uh, in, in no small part under pressure from these kinds of ways of reading Paul. And i I'm, I'm, I'm I'm extraordinarily grateful for that. And I think that there's something, there's some real salutary elements in that kind of way of thinking about Mm -hmm. the the Christian life.
0: Yeah. And I think, I think I would just point out that as, as, um, as academically lucid as this book is, and it is that uh, it is also profoundly practical. uh, And it, it's a, I appreciated so much that you ended with this, um, this exposition of Christian ethics, because it offers such a, a, a concrete challenge, um, to the reader to how we begin not only to think about Christian ethics, but actually to live as kingdom subjects. So Phil, are you ready for our final speed round? Most certainly. Okay. More off the wall questions. okay. Uh, okay. Star Trek, Star Wars, or neither?
1: Oh, Star Trek, actually. Oh, okay.
0: Uh, <laughs> what incredibly common thing have you never done?
1: What incredibly common thing have I never done. Um, I've never swam more than two lengths of a swimming pool.
0: Oh, wow. Mm. And you live in Scotland.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, It's dangerous. Very dangerous indeed.
0: (laughs) Um, What food or food combination do you absolutely love that other people find strange?
1: Hmm. Um, I'm actually drawn to the black pudding burger as a thing here in Scotland. Um, and not everyone finds the addition of black pudding to anything, uh, an attractive <laughs> option, but,
0: uh. no, I can understand why that would be. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll have to tell my husband about that. He loves, he loves black pudding. Okay. We've talked a lot about Satan and death and the devil. So Phil, if Satan had a soundtrack, what song would be on repeat in hell?
1: Oh gosh! <laughs> I suppose it—it it, it depends whether we are we are we imagining kind of Satan wanting to enjoy the music that he plays himself, or whether he just wants to torment those who are with him.
0: Wait, are um, those mutually exclusive?
1: Probably. Well, no, but they might be different. I, let's go with the s- second, assuming that the devil's only interest is tor—is sheer <laughs> the sheer torment of those who are there. I would think a kind of of endless Muzak versions of 1980s
0: (laughs) would probably be...
1: The, the 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 music best designed to engender the kind of suffering that the devil would have an interest in.
0: Right, right. Yeah. So so just to be clear, listeners, I think uh, what Phil is saying is that the hold music for most um, most call centers, it, call centers and, yes, is Satan's soundtrack.
1: I I think that's pretty much right.
0: It is a, it is a manifestation of sin, death, and the devil.
1: Um, I, yeah yeah. There so, are th- <laughs> there are anti parables of the kingdom. To, to, to be found. That may well be one of them.
0: Okay. Okay. What's something you wish was illegal?
1: Something I wish were illegal. Um, gosh. Um, I'm going to pass on that. I'm not, yeah, I can't conjure anything um, uh, at the minute. That's disappointing. I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it'll be something you, you can think about. Uh, maybe the next time you're on hold at a call center.
1: I'll, I'll imagine in fact perhaps being put on hold at a call center might might well be the kind of thing that might there's
0: be there's sanctions made, it's like a civil illegal. penalty <laughs>
1: exactly
0: uh, okay um yeah this is our there are two final questions in script are um they're pretty standard if you if you've listened before um and you can name names for the first one, and you don't have to name names for the second one, and either way is fine. So, the first question that we always ask um, at the end of an interview is, what is the most important work in theology or biblical studies in the past 50 years?
1: Hmm. Gosh, I mean, there are lots of candidates, aren't there, for those for that kind of um, acclamation. Um, I think for me, if I could put it like this, um, I... I would like to suggest, and we haven't talked about this um, in the context of, of this particular discussion, but I think the work that's gone into producing the, the Dietrich Bonhoeffer works, the critical edition of the Bonhoeffer works, I think that is one of the one of the real th- um, theological uh, or uh, pub- publishing achievements in the in, in in the realm of theology in the last fifty years, to be sure. Um, the, the production of that project, vast as it is, and the importance of of those texts for the ongoing Discussion, reception, and responsible uh, discussion and reception of Bonhoeffer, I think, is immense, um, and their their simultaneous, almost simultaneous rendering in English, also, um, I think, it has been a game changer. So that's yeah, that that would be one thing that I think I might take out. Great.
0: And what is one idea in theology that you think needs to go the way of the dodo bird, that needs to become extinct and die? <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, gosh. There are, um, there are all kinds of ways in which one might think about participation, um, that I might like to think, um, would pass away, um, that's a category that can mean a whole lot of things but but there's some there's some extraordinarily interesting uh, debate about the value or the limitations of that way of thinking and i, I, I uh, getting that right would be an achievement and if we got that right there'd be a lot that we would have to set set aside okay. so l- let me offer that as a thought
0: okay okay well friends that's all the time we have for today we've been chatting with philip Ziegler about his book militant grace which you can purchase on amazon and it's even better if you click on on our Amazon link uh, on the OnScript page because the Amazon gives us a tiny percentage of the sale, which helps uh, support the ongoing work of OnScript. So thanks for listening. Thanks, Phil, for being with us today. And we'll see you next time.